The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. Sin is not the end of the story. If you were here last week, you, you got a good look at the depth and the deceptive power of sin to destroy someone's life. That reality is something that, by God's grace, we hope to never mute or avoid or de-emphasize in gospel ministry as a church. But sin is not the end of the story. Chapter 11 is followed by chapter 12 in 2 Samuel, which illustrates for us how a holy God relates to a sinful man. Injustice, yes, but also by grace. So our sense of justice to be done rises within us as we consider David's lust, his selfishness, his deception, his cover-up, his scheming, and his murder. Perhaps you've felt that rising in your hearts at times. Maybe you've been in a church where um, one of the leaders had disqualified himself due to a moral failure. Or you're a spouse who's been hurt by your husband or your wife. Maybe that sense of needed justice arises in you as you just observe the sin of others, as you watch the news or social media or the the sin at work in your own home or that you see in the church. What we see today in our text is nothing less than astounding. I hope that we see that. God relates to David, not in judgment, which he deserves, but through grace. And that raises several questions for us. How could God be righteous and not judge David for his sin? Doesn't the notion that we're we're, we're thinking about grace here, doesn't that produce a kind of person that will just do whatever they want? because they know that they'll be forgiven and they'll be fine. The more you study the book of Jonah, the more you see that Jonah wasn't running from God because he was afraid for his own sin. He was actually running because he was afraid of God's grace being shown to a sinful nation. God's grace is surprising. We would say even scandalous, marvelous, absolutely outside of our finite understanding. And it's that grace that we come face to face with this morning. We saw last week that David is a man in authority. He's a king. When he speaks, things happen. When he sins, people come. He takes what he wants. And he can literally make any obstacle, including a human being, disappear so that he can get what he wants. So he saw Bathsheba. He wanted her. He took her. He had her husband killed, he married her, and now he's the father to her child. But as we saw last week, there is a greater authority at work in this world than man's authority. God sent Nathan to rebuke David for his sin here in chapter 12. What happens next illustrates the pursuing and revealing and disciplining and redeeming grace of God. Not just for David, but for all of us. 
wonder if you're feeling disqualified from that kind of grace this morning by something that you've done. I wonder if you're someone who's, as Dave prayed, miserable right now because you're not coming clean with just the reality of your sin and who, who you are, who you've been. Are you neglecting God's word? Are you wondering at God's justice? Where is God right now in your life? At his presence? Are you aware of God's amazing grace that's on offer for you this morning in Jesus Christ? Did you know that your sin doesn't have to be the end of your story? The main point of the sermon is this. God's grace to sinners in Christ is greater than our sin. God's grace to sinners in Christ is greater than our sin. I just want to preach a message of good news this morning to you. An invitation to experience God's grace. And to flesh that out, um, I want to point out four actions of God's grace in our passage. You can see these uh, outlined there in your bulletin if you want to follow along in that way. So we're going to see, number one, how God's grace pursues. God's grace pursues. We'll see, secondly, how God's grace reveals. Number three, we'll see how God's grace disciplines. God's grace disciplines. And then number four, how God's grace redeems. God's grace pursues, it reveals, it disciplines, and it redeems. And no matter where you are this morning in your life, you need to hear this. You need God's word being clear about our sin and equally clear about his abundant and marvelous grace to save. And so we're going to walk through our text section by section. Let's start just with the context as we consider how God's grace, number one, pursues us. It pursues us. I want to go back to chapter 11. Pick it up there in verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Let's just stop there. I think the danger in listening to and even preaching familiar passages is that we tend to overlook some details. That's true for me. I'll just tell you this week, that's true for me. So, for example, the time between uh, chapter 11, verse 26 and 27, and chapter 12, verse 1, I had never thought about how long that period of time was for David. In my mind, David sinned, and the Lord sent Nathan the next day to rebuke him. But we're at least talking about nine months, aren't we? A space of nine months, maybe a year. So Bathsheba was pregnant, then she gave birth. So you just might write that in the space between your chapters 11 and 12, nine to 12 months later, dot, dot, dot. And I think that's a helpful way to frame this story. David didn't just sin, he was living with his sin. He was living the deception month after month. Now listen to Psalm 32 that Dave read earlier, um, a psalm of David. 
for our confession of sin. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I just wonder if that's for someone here this morning, that that reality that sin makes us miserable. And that there is an offer of relief. There's an offer to, to lay down that burden. If you're here walking in sin, living in sin, if you want to gauge on where you are spiritually, just ask yourself this question, how am I doing at living in sin? How, how do I make day-to-day with kind of hiding my sin? I hide it from God or I hide it from others. David, we know from Psalm 32, was miserable in his sin when he kept silent over these months. That's a sign, I think, of more than just a pricked conscience. God gives us all a conscience by common grace that, that, that kind of gets at us at different levels. And we do things that are contrary to who God is and to his word. But for his people, God's grace comes after us, doesn't it? It pursues us. And friends, that's not always a pretty picture. It's not always fun. But it is always for our good. So if you are his this morning, you need to know that he will not leave you in your sin. His grace is a pursuing grace. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And I think that pursuit takes many forms. Often it comes in the forms of people. So God sent Nathan. One of the blessings of being part of a local church is that we have promised, haven't we, to not let another brother or sister continue in sin. Well, that's an expression, a means of God's pursuing grace. And I want to be in a group of people that are going to come after me if I need to be chased down to help expose my own self-deception. Friend, don't you? Do you have someone like that in your life that is willing to, to come after you in love? If you're a member of our church, let me just remind you of the promise that you've made in actually doing this and promising to come and love a brother or sister in this way. Now, sometimes you're going to need to be Nathan. And there's going to be times you're going to need a Nathan. Either way, we see expressions of God's grace that, that pursues us, and we see it happening in David's life. God sent Nathan, and Nathan carried, notice, not just good advice, but he carried with him God's word. And by his grace, that word reveals our sin. That's number two that we'll see. It's an observation about God's grace. It reveals our sin. Now, Nathan hasn't had much of an introduction um, in the book of Samuel. Uh, He delivered God's gracious promise in chapter 7, the Davidic covenant. And now God's gracious rebuke in chapter 12. He just comes and speaks God's word. And I think that's instructive for us. Nathan is a messenger, a prophet. His role is to deliver something, not to be super special himself. And he delivers this message, notice, to a king. But he delivers it in a way that I think he would deliver to the king's cook in his kitchen. The message itself doesn't change. And how instructive that is for a, just as a pastor. How tempted might I feel to speak a word to someone differently who could perhaps benefit me in a way that another couldn't? 
Or I might have a chance of losing something, so I might adjust what I would say. Maybe you, you feel that same temptation. Well, for Nathan, this is a dangerous business. Uh, David could simply just have him killed and bring in another prophet. He'll tell him what he wants to hear. Nevertheless, Nathan speaks God's word to David, and he does it in a very powerful way, in just a way, and I think just an illustration of the way God's word is in our lives. Now, there's disagreement on whether this is a, is a parable that Nathan's telling him or if it's an actual case. That It seems like David sees it as a case. David's acting as a judge as he listens to the story. But notice that through the story, it's actually God who's going to judge David. So let's read it together there. Verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Friends, what a powerful illustration of David's sin. Not one we could probably just make up on our own. The rich man had everything. The poor man, nothing, save one little lamb. Isn't it interesting? He's talking to a former shepherd. This is pulling at the heartstrings of David. Little lamb. A lamb was everything to him. He was like a daughter. Of course, in Hebrew, that, that word daughter is bat. That first part of Bathsheba's name. Nice touch by Nathan. Instead of taking from his plenty, this rich man took, like David, took the poor man's precious lamb. And what better way to confront a king than to have him condemn himself? In his own words, and that is exactly what David does. Look at the kind of the outrage that builds up in him in verse 5. Then David's anger was quickly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And so the law required this fourfold restitution, Exodus 22, not death. But in David's rage and well, it's just possibly kind of stressed out, guilty state, he says the man deserves to die. He's that upset over it. And it's here that Nathan kind of goes into the application of his story. Let's just know this about God's word. It is not something that you can just sort of safely observe like an experiment in a laboratory. It will always spill out and get on you. So here, verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 
Friends, this is what the Bible does, isn't it? It reads us really more than we read it. It critiques us. It evaluates us. It reveals us. It reveals our sin. How many times have you, if you're a believer here this morning, been struck by God's word as if it was looking at you and saying, you are the man. You are the woman. Not that other person that you're thinking about applying this truth to, but you. As if it was God was speaking directly to us. That's the nature of God's word. The author of Hebrews says this, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. Beloved, this is why we as a church are seeking to make God's word as central as we can, both in our discipleship and our worship. Because I cannot, you cannot, none of us can manufacture that kind of result. Um, You understanding your heart's intention by me telling you a funny story about what happened to me this week. My job is just simply just to deliver the word of God to you clearly and faithfully. That's all of our jobs when we care for and counsel each other. We seek to encourage each other. We seek to do it with the word of God, this powerful word of God. Did you notice that Nathan's summary of David's sin was that he despised the word of the Lord? Verse 9, that's really what he says you did. You despise the word of the Lord. And when we despise God's word, we're actually despising God himself. Notice that connection in verse 10. Maybe. There it is. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Again, in David's confession uh, down in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So, so God's gracious purpose in cutting to the heart of our sin by his word is to not just reveal that we are sinners, but actually to show us we've sinned ultimately against him, against God. And friend, if you're not a regular kind of church attender, um, maybe this is the first time you're, you're here listening to a sermon on the Bible, I'm really glad you're here. And you need to know and understand this is actually a kind of a fundamental piece if you want to understand Christianity, that we all by nature are sinners, and we've sinned ultimately against God himself. And God is holy and powerful, and he has made us in his image to know him and to love him and to glorify him. And we've all turned away from him, kind of like this rich man in Nathan's story. We've been given so much, but he's offering to us and knowing him, and we've rejected him and taken from other means and rebelled against him, and now also are deserving death. David's confession there in verse 13, it may sound short and sweet to you. It is pretty short. In Hebrew, in Hebrew it's just two words. But what's interesting about that, that confession is that he doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't blame shift. He doesn't say, oh, I'm sorry if you were offended, God. I mean, compare that with Saul's confession back in 1 Samuel. The way that that Saul blamed others and made excuses for his disobedience. Compare that to Adam's own confession of sin in Genesis 3. It was the woman 
that you ultimately gave me. Now, David shows himself to actually be vulnerable to God's rebuke, and he repents of his sin. And if this is kind of short for you, just go over and read Psalm 51. It was written as a reflection of this very moment. The, the superscription reads, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Just listen to how God's grace has opened David's eyes to his sin against God. He says, For I know my transgressions, verse 3 of Psalm 51, and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It's only by God's grace that you can say that. It's only by God's grace that you can say you've ultimately sinned against God. He's the real offended party. It's only by his grace that we don't compare our sin to others. It's not as bad as this other person. I'm actually fine. Or that we, or we justify our sin. Well, here's why I did what I did. Friend, this is your story. This is my story. We are sinners, and we have sinned against a holy God. And if you're grappling with that reality this morning, don't ignore it. Don't, don't allow yourself to kind of waste away thinking, well, this will just pass. Perhaps God is pursuing you this morning. Perhaps God is revealing your sin by his grace this morning through his word. Respond to God's grace like David did. Repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Do that today. Do that now. God's grace pursues. It reveals and it also disciplines. We see sin's consequences often remain and are used by God for our own good. So that's number three, that we, the observation that we see about grace is that it disciplines us. The author of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 12, verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? See that, discipline as a, a sign of being part of the family of God, of being a son or daughter of God. I think it's helpful to see the consequences of David's sin here as the Lord's discipline in his life. But let me also say, this is David's life. This is David's sin. This is not your sin. And I would, be, I would encourage you not to begin to draw mental lines between your own circumstances and your own sin. To identify this is happening because of X. Friends, we have a very, very clear example here. We know exactly what is happening and why these things are happening. It comes directly from God's mouth. We don't have that kind of clarity in our own life today as we think about what's going on, what kind of suffering or, or loss is going on in my life. Have I lost a child? I want to encourage you not to immediately jump to, well, obviously this is the discipline of God in my life. I want to point you rather to Jesus' words in John 9 as they walk past a blind man and his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Remember those words. Remember that God is wanting to receive glory. He's sovereign. He's good in our lives. And no matter what comes into our lives, he means it to be for our good and for his glory. Now, let's look at David's discipline here and the way it unfolds, beginning in verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. We see a correlation, don't we, between David's sin and the discipline from God? David killed Uriah with the sword of the Ammonites, and so the sword will not depart from David's house. David's sin began in his own house, and the Lord will raise up evil, not from outside, but from within his own family. Since David took his neighbor's wife in secret, God will give David's wives to his neighbor, actually turns out to be his son, in public for all to see. These sad consequences unfold throughout really the rest of the book of Samuel and if you read First and Second Kings. The path of sin that David chose turns out to be actually a terrible one. And friends, this is always the case. A life of sin is hard and a turbulent way to live life. God calls us to a better path. It should remind us that sin has its consequences. We may be forgiven of our sin, but often the temporal scars from our sin remain in this life. So we should not take sin lightly. We're saying something about God as his people by the way that we live. God takes that very seriously. This is why as a church, we we practice church discipline as actually an expression of God's grace. That discipline takes the form of formative discipline, which is teaching, that, that as we hear God's word, we're reminded of who he is and we make corrections and adjustments in our own life. But it also takes the form of corrective discipline. When we go off in unrepentant sin and we need someone to come after us and to draw us back to him. We do that because we want to corporately say something about Jesus to the world. We want everyone to see this witness of holiness in the glory of God when they look to us. Not perfectly, but that we would admit and understand, of course, we're sinners, but we are repenting sinners who are seeking to glorify God in every, in every way that we can. And by God's grace, when we're confronted with our sin, God's people at different paces and speeds repent and return to him. Now, I wish I could say the discipline in this story ended there, but it doesn't. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. These words strike a much more kind of ominous tone, not just because it's dealing with a child. This also, if you think about it, strikes directly at the promise that God had made to David in chapter 7 to establish David's house, his family, to raise up his offspring, and specifically to make David's son reign forever. So is 
God now rejecting David? Is he removing this precious promise? These are very difficult verses to read. Let's look at there in verse 15. Then David went to his house and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of David or sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Friends, there's no doubt to the cause of the child's illness. The Lord afflicted the child. In verse 15, there's no doubt as to why the Lord afflicted the child. Verse 14, because David's sin utterly scorned the Lord. The connotation is that what David did was kind of in view of God's enemies, particularly. What a tragic picture of the consequences of sin. I just want to guess and say this is the furthest thing from David's mind that day as he's walking on the roof. Sin never shows us its cards up front like that. But this kind of reality is always at the back, waiting to show itself. But notice something about David. He seems like a different person, kind of from verse 15 on. When the child gets sick, even knowing what God has said he will do, David seeks God on behalf of the child. David prays and fasts and lays on the ground all night long for for seven days. And then when he learns the child is dead, look at his reaction in verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when he, the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Just want to observe how God's kind of disciplining fatherly grace has produced this change in David. Notice that discipline doesn't take David further away from God. It brings him closer to God. Just like fathers, as we would pray, as we discipline, and mothers, we discipline our our children, we would hope that produces a closer relationship, not one that's further apart. Discipline shows love. And David knows that God loves him and has been gracious to him in the past. And now, based on that truth, that God is gracious, David prays. He prays. He doesn't say it's a foregone conclusion. I'm just going to go walk around and do nothing or even just mourn by myself. He prays. He says, who knows? God may be gracious to me and save the child. 
I just think that's, a, that's something we should take away and think about. God's grace produces this kind of, of life, a praying attitude and posture. Big prayers to God. God's grace creates that kind of person. It also creates a person who will worship God regardless of the circumstances. David worships God here very much like Job in the midst of Job's trial. It's been said many times, suffering is often the best seminary for us. We learn most about God in pain. And as Job said, God gives and he takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And then in Psalm 51, after David reflects on God's discipline in his life, after he confesses his sin and God's grace comes to him, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Verse 13. So it's, it's this that actually prepares him to teach and, and model God's word. And then just observe the hope in David. Observe the great hope. He shows all the signs, I think, that he expects to see this child again. And I'll be the first to say, you shouldn't build a theology from a passage like this. And it's a narrative and we want to make sure and, and think well about that. This is, this is the story that happened with David. But But if you're here this morning and you've lost a child, I think it's instructive to see David's great hope in his gracious father. And you also, and I also have good reason to graciously turn to our God in hope that we too would see our child again. Run to your heavenly father. Run to him. He is gracious. You have a heavenly father that loves you. If you're here this morning, you're a Christian. He does bring discipline into our lives at times. He's a ruler of all. And when hardship comes, we can know that God's not surprised. Often hardship comes because of our own sin. Sometimes it's because of someone else's sin against us. Sometimes it's because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes it's a complete mystery to us. No matter the source, God works all things together for our good and for his glory. Listen to what Sarah Edwards wrote after Jonathan Edwards, her husband, died. She's writing to a friend. And this soon after Jonathan Edwards died, she said this, What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him, her husband, so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. And that's staggering and encouraging. God's grace pursues us. It reveals our sin. It disciplines us. But finally, we also see that God's grace redeems us. That's the fourth observation. God's grace redeems us. Now, let's go back to David's confession of sin and repentance there in verse 13. I haven't read it all yet. I want to read the whole verse. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also, also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Like the man in the story, David deserved to die. The law, the Bible, called for it. And David knows it. 
His confession and repentance are mingled with cries of mercy in Psalm 51. Listen again to Psalm 51, a different section. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop that I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Isn't that great? Against all of our own logic, against all of our own gut reaction and our sense of justice, we read in verse 13 that God puts David's sin away. He removes it. And the consequences for it go with it. So this is a spatial illustration of God's forgiveness. It's your sin has been put away over there. So it emphasizes separation and removal of guilt from the confessing sinner. And if you just read the Old Testament over and over, you get these marvelous metaphors that, that the Old Testament uses to describe really the indescribable, the way God takes away our sin. It magnifies, the Old Testament magnifies God's grace in this way. So just soak it up as you hear these metaphors. In the Old Testament, we read that our sin is healed like a disease. It is forgotten like a fleeting thought. It is stomped underfoot, thrown behind the back or thrown into the depths of the sea. It is cleansed. It is washed. It is wiped away. It is blotted out. It is erased. Sin can be separated as far as the east from the west, borne away or covered over. God's grace is a redeeming, forgiving, merciful grace. And that's just the Old Testament. What makes God's grace so unique, however, is that it's also righteous. It would, in fact, be wrong, unrighteous, to let a murderer like David go without penalty. God is righteous, and therefore we have a problem. He shows amazing, pardoning grace, but that we know must be rooted in justice somewhere. And so putting sin away sounds good for the moment, but where does that sin go? And I think we have a hint in our passage. It's David's son who takes the penalty for David's sin. David's son dies the death that David deserved. You could almost see that as a substitute. And friends, what does that point to? Well, it points to another one of David's sons, who would also die for David's sin. But if you could imagine an even more innocent death than the lamb in Nathan's story, or this little baby, this child, more precious than anything in the universe, that's the one who would die, Jesus Christ. That's what happened ultimately to David's sin. It was put away over here, resting, waiting until the day it would be poured out relentlessly on Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's seeking to 
flesh out in Romans 3. Romans 3, 24, he says, We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. There's the problem that's solved at the cross, God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, passed them over, put them away. But it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, beloved, we, we have an amazing Savior who has borne away our sin. Jesus took on himself all the sins of not just David. Imagine David's sin, how upset we are about David's sin, but all those that would turn from their sin and put their trust in him, he took it upon himself and not only was a substitute, but an atoning sacrifice. He made those sins, he took them upon himself and did away with them. That as, as if we had never sinned, as God looks upon us. He died for them, and then he rose victorious over them. Friends, this is the good news of God's grace. This is redeeming grace. God is just and the justifier of the ungodly. And I just hope you see the glory in this. I love Ray Ortland's motto at his church in Nashville. Maybe I've said this to you before, but, but kind of everyone at the church kind of learns this. Three things. Number one, number two, my future is incredibly bright. Number three, anyone can get in on this. I'm a mess. My future is incredibly bright. Anyone can get in on this. Don't you want to get in on this? Don't you want to get in on this grace, this invitation to benefit from God's pardoning, redeeming grace? It changes everything. It changes everything. Look at the way it changes our story. Look at verse 24. Then God, then David, rather, verse 24, comforted his wife. I would love to be a fly on the wall in that conversation. What does that mean? He comforted his wife. I think it likely means he came clean with everything. And she was comforted. He, this is the first time, by the way, she's called his wife. Usually it's Uriah's wife. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. God's promises are not voided. The Davidic covenant still stands. Solomon would be the one who would succeed David. Somehow this, this family is held together. Oh, may our families be held together by God's grace. May our marriages be fueled by God's grace. Now, things are going to change as we continue to read. But God's grace is a transforming, redeeming grace. And then kind of to, to sort of round out the story, we see that David is actually restored now to his place as king. Verse 26, now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. 
And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold and it was a precious stone and it was placed on David's head and he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. God even restores a sinner like David into a place of service for him. And I hope that encourages you as you think about this picture of just marvelous and costly grace. The author of Hebrews, after he, he kind of talks about how God's word slices us up, reveals our even intentions of our heart, he then points us to grace. He says this in Hebrews 4, 14, he says, Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you're a believer here this morning, that grace is available to you. If you're this morning and you're not a Christian, that grace is available. Perhaps God is opening your eyes to the beauty of his son and your need for him. His grace pursues us. It reveals our sin. It disciplines us. It redeems us. And at the same time, that grace will bring us all the way home. And that picture might look something like what John Bunyan wrote many years ago. He said this, Now I saw in my dream that the highway which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that road was called salvation. Up this road, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but now without great difficulty, because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher or tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from his soldiers and, soldiers and fell from off his back and began to tumble. And so continued until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Friends, our sin is not the end of the story. Don't you want in on the grace of God? Let's pray. Lord, we love you and thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for this word. We pray that we would see it the way that David did. It would have that kind of impact. Whatever the need is, we know that your word will not return void. And so even now as we respond in, in singing to you and as we come to the Lord's table, Lord, we pray you would continue to be at work opening up our eyes 
opening up our eyes to who you are to us as a heavenly father and to your marvelous grace. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.